Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, I am your host, John Najarian, and this is Compound Interests. Compound Interests, I get to talk to a lot of really interesting folks, and this, no exception, Devin Bronson is a guy that toured with uh, Kelly Osborne. Um, he is a guitarist that grew up on the West Coast, ended up working with the uh, crazy Osborne clan and going around the world with them on tour playing guitar, and then with Avril Lavigne. And now he is a songwriter, guitarist, and an options trader. How about that? He got into options trading by watching Halftime Report, by tuning in and listening to Pete and John. And we're delighted that he is a client of Market Rebellion. I think you're going to love this conversation, folks, because this is coming from a gentleman who earns a living with his hands uh, and his brain playing up there on stage in front of 85,000 people in Brazil and also then comes back to the hotel and checks out the stock prices and decides, okay, here's the spread I want to put on for tomorrow. I think you're going to love this. It's a great conversation with Devin Bronson or Evil D as his stage name is. I know you're going to enjoy it. Please listen and let us know. Cool. Well, now, Devin, um, let's hit the musical side of what you do first, because there's a surprise coming, folks, for many of you, um, as it was for me, too, when Devin reached out to us. Uh, but you began in the Seattle uh, area, or at least you were born there. Yeah. And then you got involved uh, at a very young age uh, playing guitar and found out, I guess, that you had a real gift in this area. Please tell some of the viewers and listeners about how that came to be and, you know, then how you went from that to that next level of being a pro musician. Yeah, my, um, my family, I would say I'm third generation musician. So my grandfather uh, in Seattle was a big band leader and a horn player. So this is at a time when you'd have people come to town, they wouldn't bring a band, they'd send charts. And my grandfather would was in the band and often led the band for people like Bob Hope or Count Basie when they would come to Seattle. So he, he was a professional musician his whole life. And then my father, born in Seattle, uh, was in bands growing up and moved to Vegas when he was 19 to be the house band at the Hilton. And this is the era of like, when you see the movie Casino, that Sam Rothstein gangster era of Vegas, you know, not the Bugsy Siegel era. This is like, you know, 70s, you know, Vegas debauchery nonsense. So he was like a kid from a small town suburb of Seattle moving to Vegas and got the bug and was like, this is what I'm going to do. And was in a touring band for years called Freshwood and toured the country, met my mom in Missoula, Montana. Uh, my mom moves to Seattle with him. My, myself, my brother come along over the you know course of the next six years or so. Then my dad gets an opportunity to, uh, to be the lounge piano player at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. <laughs> so, so like any responsible adult with two children, uh, you say, yeah, let's just pack up and move to California and do it. <laughs> so, we, so, uh, so we moved when I was about, I think, eight or nine. 
to California and I lived in the suburbs there. And my dad was the, the piano player there for about 30 years. And he, he grew that into a very successful contracting business for contracting music for different resorts and uh, hotels and private events. And I guess I just kind of had the bug like early on that this was something I was pretty interested in. And I dabbled in it when I was young. And then when I hit high school, it was just like head to the ground. I'm going to practice guitar nine hours a day and was that music dork. And uh, what was cool about it was by the time I was like 16 or 17, I was good enough that I could get in some bands with guys much older than me. So I was getting a lot of experience playing in clubs in Hollywood at a very young age when I wasn't even allowed to be there, when it would be like, you know, put an X on your hand and you have to stand outside, then you can walk on the stage and play and then we're kicking you out of here and getting to like sneak drinks as a kid and have that kind of upbringing was really cool. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... It was interesting because I, you know, I didn't grow up in like the Hollywood area, but I was close enough that I could access that and see that. And uh, I got really excited just about taking music seriously. So when high school ended, I was like, well, I'm either going to go to college and kind of drop this and it'll be a hobby. I'm going to do it for real. And I was fortunate. I got a great opportunity kind of right out of high school to tour uh, with Kelly Osborne, who's Ozzy Osbourne's daughter. And they were the biggest thing in the world at the time because the Osbournes was on MTV that was getting like... 20 million people a night were watching it. It was massive. They were hugely famous again. Yep. And growing up being a metal kid, I was just like, this is amazing. I get to sit and hang out with Ozzy Osbourne. So that was kind of the start. And uh, it's been going ever since. And every day I'm scared. I go, this is going to end someday. I got to do a bunch of other stuff and be <laughs> active in other areas. But it's been going great so far. Wow. And uh, folks, he's being very humble um, because uh, Evil D played with um, after Kelly Osbourne, which in and of itself, you know, that's, you're with rock royalty, obviously, metal royalty in particular. And, you know, Ozzy's, uh, what was it, Ozfest? Is that what he used to call it? Yep. Okay. Um, and I know his wife, uh, you know, which we all knew from the TV show, well, those of us who were old enough to see it, um, that, was, uh, that was the Kardashians of the day. And she was the daughter of a big music producer. Don Arden, yeah, manager. Yeah who, yeah, who was Ozzy's manager. Yep. And she basically had to steal Ozzy from her dad and break up the family, really, because Ozzy was getting screwed. That's Those are my words, not... <laughs> not yeah, well, I mean, she's spoken openly about that, I think, of, a t you know, he was kind of down and out. And is he going to do this solo career? Is anyone going to take it seriously? And she's, she took it on. Yep. And did a lot for him. And I, you know, that arguably became bigger than Black Sabbath, his solo career. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that Ozfest, I mean, oh, my God, this is like Lollapalooza um, on the road. It wouldn't just be in one. And I know Lollapalooza yeah. used to travel around, too. Yeah. As you know, Devin, we're lucky enough that Chicago ended up being where Lollapalooza headquartered. I played it in 2008, right in Grant Park there. Oh, yeah. man. That was great. Well, I hope I hope they're back. And I hope you're back. Um, you got a place to stay if you need it. Done. I'm taking you um, up on it. <laughs> all right. Done. And we'll go out for some great meals. Amen. And my daughters have been going to, I have a 17-year-old and a 21-year-old. And the 21-year-old had been to Lala with um, uh, Sasha and Malia. Uh, oh, the year they were. Yeah, those photos came out. I remember that year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and lots of stories about that. <laughs> but I'll be nice to the Obamas. Sure, sure. Um, I got no reason to not be nice to them. But uh, yeah, those were, uh, that's one of the craziest rock concerts. And there was a guy, by the way, Devin, I'm, I bet you'll get a kick out of this. There was a guy in Chicago in the pits that started something called Riot Fest. You remember yeah, that? I do. I was supposed to play it, I think, a year. It might have been last year when it got canceled. Yeah. I remember that because uh, that was a little more hardcore of a festival, I know. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. But he ended up, uh, um, sadly, he died. Um, he was hanging out with his dad. He was a big broker in the OEX pit. Uh, no, oh, wow. SPX pit, SPX, the S&P 500 options. And he did a huge business there. And he ended up buying a bar. And then he ended up getting into the music scene in a big way. And he is the driving force that created Riot Fest. Wow. He's not just some guy that hung around. He created it. And um, I think, who's the guy with Doble Vodka, uh, Doble Tequila, and... Uh, the guy that's the head of, uh, it just keeps coming in and out of my head. Um, the head of Lala now, the, the creator of Lala. Perry Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. Perry um, tried to buy Riot Fest from him, uh, supposedly. Wow. And I wouldn't be surprised because I had no idea how big that was, but it was huge. And uh, then sadly, when he passed, I don't know what ended up happening with Riot Fest. But that was indeed a huge um, Lala type, except only the next level as far as metal. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are a few of these now. And actually, my old attorney went into this business with his name is Danny Hayes. He left law and he went into business with a guy named Danny Wimmer. And they do a lot of like, I think it's called Aftershock Festival. There's a couple that they do in and around the country that are these like two or three day events that are massive that are for like hard rock. Yeah. Versus like Coachella's more indie and pop. And uh, so, you, you, and I actually think you might start to see a lot more of these when we're out of COVID. You might see a bunch more. Cause I mean, it's a hard business to get into because you take on a lot of risk, but I think the demand will at least be there. People will want to go. Oh, yeah. And because of the age my daughters are, you know, they've been to things like, uh, oh, Astro World, oh, wow. um, you know, with all the rappers and hip hop and all that stuff or any of the ones down in uh, Miami. Yeah. Uh, you know, because uh, these are events that especially kids want to go to uh, and they get to see the stars up close or as close as they can get really. And they're very cool. They love these things. I, I think you're right. They're going to be a lot more of these once we reopen. Uh, I, uh, I worked with these DJs named Cruella maybe three or four years ago. And they're massive in the EDM dance scene. And they had this concept about bringing a live drummer and a live guitar player out. And so it was like hard rock on top of that genre, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. So I went and did it with them. And we did these festivals in Brazil called Ultra Fest. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's 85,000 people, massive, you know, the lights and the pyro and all the craziness. And we get there and I go to the tour manager. I go, all right, well, what time are we on? They go, uh, 2 a.m. I go, what? 2 a.m.? Like, that, that's, I'm in bed at that time. We, like, you don't do that in rock. Like, it's, you know, 9.30, 10 o'clock, you're on stage. It's like, no, these are these dance festivals that go to, like, 6 in the morning. Like, there are people going on stage at 3.30 a.m. I go, yeah, well, <laughs> time to get a nap wow. in. So, 
switching gears again back to um, the Osbournes. So you go from touring with Kelly um, to then obviously meeting a lot of people in uh, uh, those that, that upper level of rock and you go around with Avril Lavigne. Yeah, that um, was the next like big, big gig I got was working with Avril Lavigne. And she'd just come off of her first record that was massive. Her second record had just come out and I had met them touring. Like you said, like, you know, it's a small world once you get into it where you kind of see the same people, you know, you're at a festival show, you see guys in bands, you, you see acts here and there, different radio shows. So I had met her and her guitar player got a record deal and he quit. And I was, I had moved to Toronto to do an album with another band I had joined at the time and it wasn't going well. It was horrible. It's falling apart. Just like, you know, I'm like, this is it. My career is over. This album's never going to happen. And she called me and she said, my guitar player is leaving next week. Can you fly out and do this? Done. Let's go. So I flew out and did that gig for a lot of years. And that, that was like the first, like, this is real serious touring with a serious big artist on a massive level. Well, and so you went from that and Sebastian Bach and a bunch of this other cool stuff that you know, I saw when I looked on your Wikipedia. And oh, all. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that's Skid Row, by the way, folks. Uh, Sebastian Rock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bach, Sebastian Bach. But um, yeah, I remember Skid Row. <laughs> Those were crazy, crazy guys. He's still, he's still full rock and roll. We did a, I was doing a record with him and he had some shows in and around making the record. And one of them was like a week of dates and he goes, uh, can you come do these shows with me? And I hadn't, you know, I wasn't, I was there doing an album with them. We were writing a record and, you know, I go, what are the shows? And he goes, uh, some shows in the Midwest, uh, they're at these arenas. It's us and Rat, Lita Ford and Dawkin. I go, <laughs> sign me up. This is awesome. This is the time machine, heavy metal time machine right now. And we would be, I mean, we were in Chicago, but it was the arena in Moline. Like we'd be out there. And it's like these, we pulled up, people were still tailgate partying. Like it was, you know. 89 still it was awesome oh, yeah. yeah it was a ton of fun god i remember lita ford yeah uh used to love to watch her videos back in the day yeah that was she, she still rocks man she yeah. she tours all when you when you're allowed to tour she's out there all the time a lot of these acts they you know they, they live on the road because that's where the money's made now is you know you're not making sure. it on albums you're making it touring right um by the way folks um i'm i'm speaking with evil d um, Devin Bronson, and uh, that's his website as well. Uh, Devin, D-E-V-I-N-B-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. Uh, and you can go there, check out what Devin's doing. One of the things you've been doing is, of course, writing music. You're a songwriter uh, yeah. in addition to playing and a producer, I guess, as yeah. well, right? Yes. You work with artists in the studios and so forth. Yeah, I do that. And uh, a main part of what I do now is music for uh, TV and film and a lot of film trailers and ad campaigns. And uh, I was doing that. I was playing with that while I was touring. It was always a fun thing to do when I got home. I could work on some stuff and place it with a company and see it on television and get royalty income. And I go, oh, this is the nice passive income stream I'm looking for. And yeah. I just kept adding to that and adding to it and doing it. And then in 2017, I go, I'm gonna start my own company and do this and we're going to control it. And we're going to work with clients. And uh, that's noise candy music. And that's been in business since 2017. 
And uh, we actually, we just signed our deal uh, with a distributor. So we're now in 40 different countries, our catalog. And uh, that's, that's my day job now as I sit in the studio, pump out albums and, you know, tour when I want to. Well, that's, that's a blessing because uh, especially during the COVID lockdown, um, probably, you know, just saved you having, like you say, that reoccurring revenue model. Um, Yeah. I know uh, Californication and a couple other TV shows um, that that you that it said that you'd had um, music on those, and you also yeah. do commercials as well. You said, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is so you know, in songwriting, you know, you have score, which is like a a show or a film hires a composer to do that score. But a lot of shows are licensing songs, so they're going to catalogs and finding music to put into either certain scenes or it's all from production library content. And there are a lot of big companies like Universal has big libraries of this, BMG, and then a lot of boutiques where, you know, there are albums that stylistically fit all these different genres and music supervisors and editors will go to those uh, for sports often. A lot of times it's like, I'll be watching hockey and my songs being played on all the replay bumpers. Like, Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. (laughs) You just randomly see it places. So uh, that, and then, you know, the film trailer world is a little more bespoke for the project you're working on. A lot of times it's custom work. A lot of times it's doing albums in a certain genre that go out to people when they're working on certain campaigns for different movies. And that's, that's a little more direct for like, you know, what they call sync licensing where they're just buying that out and they're, paying you a rate to do this thing versus having it just out there and you never know where it's going to get used and you get your statements and you're like, Oh, that's cool. I was on that show or uh, a big, uh, you know, I see my music used on Dateline 2020 constantly. And it's just fun. It's like, Oh, that's cool. I loved that doing that song and it worked (laughs) and some of it doesn't work. And you go, why didn't that one work? That one I thought was better and nobody used it. So it's just, you know, it's throwing stuff out there, which is probably the similar thing to, trading or investing where you can try different things and you don't always know what's going to stick. Sure. Well, before we make that leap into trading and investing, because that's the hook folks. Um, uh, there were two guys that uh, I, I can't really say I grew up with them, but we were in the same city at similar times. And that was Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen mm-hmm. brothers. Wow. Um, that did, you know, I'm, my dad was an investor in their first movie, Blood wow. Simple. Um, and then they did Raising Arizona and Fargo. No Crossing, Fargo. Yeah. I mean, these guys are monsters. But that was the first time, Devin, that I was introduced to the idea that, uh, you know, I was pretty young, so I wouldn't have known otherwise. But they wanted to use a, uh, um, a bit of music for the final scene in the movie. And they were able to get, um, it's the same old song, but with a different beat since you've been gone. (laughs) They got that, you know, with the dun, 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 dun. And I think they paid 10,000 bucks to be able to use that. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, if you had a movie today um, and somebody wanted to use a bit of music that was as famous as that piece was, I'm betting you'd pay a lot more than 10,000 Yeah, And that's the job of a music supervisor on a film or a TV show is a lot of times a director or a creative will have an idea for a scene and be like, you know, I really want this song in my scene. And I, then, 
okay, we're going to do that. But then the supervisor's got to go to the rights holder of that song. And then the rights holder has to work with that artist and say, do, are we going to do this? And sometimes they're like, I'm not putting my song in that crap movie, whatever it is. They're like, I'm not doing that. Or they say, yeah, that's fine. It's a million dollars. It's like, that's not in the budget. You have to negotiate. And uh, you, you can see how with, uh, how, you know, how in demand you are, how the pricing power can work with, sure. you know, we really, or this stuff has never been licensed before. I mean, that was a big deal back in the day when there's a famous story about Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney were close friends. And Paul McCartney was teaching Michael Jackson about, you need to buy publishing. You have a lot of money, like publishing's valuable. You should buy catalogs of other artists. Like, I, I can't remember if it's this, I believe Paul McCartney like owns the rights to Annie, the play or something or the and something like that. I could be wrong, but he was teaching him basically the value in it. Well, when the Beatles catalog went up for auction, who outbid Paul McCartney? Michael Jackson. Yep. It was a big problem for them. He taught him and then he came in and outbid him. And now you see Beatles songs and what they thought were crappy commercials. They're like, we would have never let that song be in that commercial, but it was now a revenue stream for Michael. And so, yeah, I mean, there are, there are artists now that with touring, you're seeing this a lot more, they can't tour. They used to maybe say, I'm never going to license my music. You're hearing it now because they're going to places saying we're willing to play ball now. And some of it hasn't, has never been used in movies or video games or film trailers or commercials and it can get a nice paycheck oh yeah it can I fill mean, the void where albums aren't now like the, the money you're not getting from records you can now get it here right well i think it wasn't it guitar hero or one of those that put aerosmith back on the map i mean when yeah. aerosmith you know was uh trying to you know keep that that group together one of the things that did that, I think, was Guitar Hero. Yeah, and that was an anomaly because I think early on, a lot of artists were like, I'm not putting my music in that stupid video game, but then realized how many people are playing this game and it would help their career. People would go buy their albums, go buy their songs. There'd be more people at the show. Like, you know, I would see a 10-year-old kid that knew Barracuda by heart. How do you know that song? Guitar Hero. It's like, okay. This is a good platform. So I'm sure that gave them power to say like, oh, you want to be in Guitar Hero now, now that everyone loves this and it's doing, yeah. it's helping you. So yeah, absolutely. Folks, um, Devin Bronson or Evil D, and I, and I know you have other nicknames, Devin, but I happen to like that one a lot. Yeah, yeah some stick, some don't, so. <laughs> yeah, like Dr. J. My dad yeah. was a doc, so I'm Dr. J. Perfect. Um, as opposed to Dr. Dre. But I am in the... Uh, I am in the Dr. Dre documentary with uh, Jimmy Iovine. You, uh, I watched that. Oh, wow. I got to check that out again. I love that documentary. Yeah. Oh, it, it is great. Um, and it was just, they used something, Devin, of me talking about beats yeah. um, on the halftime report. And they were, you know, the judge, the moderator or the host of the halftime report was saying, well, so John, isn't it? Isn't it a big negative if they're kicking these NFL players and they're telling them they can't wear these Beats headphones on the sidelines because, you know, they've licensed, sure. you know, these, uh, uh, the licensee for the uh, headphones on the sidelines is Motorola, you know, and that's why you see every head coach, doesn't matter who they are, if, um, if it's Belichick or um, if it's uh, Sean Payton or whomever, they have to wear the same headphone. Sure. Just like they all have to have a Microsoft Surface. 
um, yeah. because that's what they licensed. But I said, this is brilliant because kids will want it even more if they yeah. see that they can't have this on TV. They can warm up with it. and They can walk cool. into the stadium with it when they're walking in. Yep. It was a fashion item, really. Yep, they're they walking smart, in yeah. with the suit and the guy's totally. looking all studly and he's got the, you know, beats by Dre, you know, with the big white ones or big red ones or whatever. And they come yeah, on. That was the brilliant thing Jimmy Iovine figured out was with that. I'm going to make every artist on Interscope put these in their music videos. <laughs> like he, yeah. this was going to be a fashion item. This isn't about the headphones. That's secondary. Yep. This is a thing you want around your neck. Yep. And I, I bet you uh, noticed this part too, being a musician. And that is that uh, when they brought Dre the headphones, he brought him a couple of them that were, that had extra weight. And he said, yeah, I like these. They feel heavy. These others are so light. And they said, yeah, we just put a couple extra extra uh, bits of magnet or whatever in there because then they feel more substantial. Yeah. Pay up for them, but it's not going to do anything for the sound. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I've done some work in consumer electronics and, you know, when you see like the sonic signature of headphones or speakers and kind of see where it falls in a frequency spectrum, I saw the beats signature and it was just like this big bump of bass. And I'm like, well, that's it because that's who's listening to it. They're listening to hip hop and it's just, they want the thing to hit them in the head. And yeah, yeah. You, you, you'll be on an airplane. Somebody has beats on and you can just like feel this thing going right here. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was genius. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Apple even really did anything with those after they bought that company. Yeah, not so much, but um, you know, now they've got the very expensive um, beats headphones, you know, they're 550 bucks or whatever they yeah. are. Um, the so, AirPod Pro, whatever's, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, folks, what one thing that uh, that uh, Devin has sort of alluded to, but we're just getting to it now, is that there's one side of your brain, folks, that is uh, for mathematical, another side for emotion and things like that. And it turns out that if you have the mathematical side, a lot of the best musicians especially on the classical side of music, have that. In other words, you could be a violin player or a cello player, and chances are you were predisposed to having a gift on the mathematical side as well, and at least a strong interest in it because that's a different part of your brain. And that's one of the things that Devin has apparently because when I first met him, it was because um, he was... Uh, talking about unusual option activity and how many musicians are out there talking about unusual. That's the next segment we have to go after, Devin. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but tell us about what got you interested in it, obviously making money, but was there anything else about um, the markets and or what we're talking about? Options? I think, yeah, I mean, I guess if we go back and kind of tie this together, for me at least, it was... I would go out on the road with an artist, like an Avril Lavigne, whoever it was. Mm -hmm. And I was touring constantly and I was very young. I was in my early twenties and I grew up with no financial literacy of any kind. And it was come home from tour, pocket full of cash, I feel rich, drinks are on me. Like, you know, not saving, not investing. And it took me getting my butt kicked and being off the road for a while and blowing a huge chunk of money and going, man, I got to, I got to focus on this and I got to get my financial life in order. I can't be, but I didn't know what to do. 
So it was around that time I ended up signing a publishing deal with uh, Warner Chapel, and it was the first big check I'd ever received in my life. I remember like getting it and holding it in my hand and going like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with this. So without knowing, I just go to my bank and say, who handles investments here? And some guy comes up and says, I'll help you. And you know, I didn't know what a fiduciary was. I didn't know any of these things. So I basically just said, you handle this. So what's the guy doing? He's selling me a bunch of bank products with super high fees that are basically, in my opinion, a bunch of garbage. And this was also right around 2007, 2008, right when we took that big, we had the big financial crisis. So that, that happened. And I kind of got interested in saying, I want to take a more active role in what's happening. And I remember the benefit too, that I think a lot of musicians why they should be involved in this is is we have the benefit of traveling everywhere you get to be on the ground and see stuff mm-hmm. i get to i've been to china and saw wow they have starbucks and kentucky fried chicken and there's lines out the door these st- this is a massive growing economy or just anything you can see and take into your brain and say like that gives me some information about how stuff works and i remember calling this person at the bank and saying I want to buy this stock called uh, Las Vegas Sands. And he goes, no, do not do it. You can't do that. That's ridiculous. And he really talked me out of it. And I said, well, I was just in Vegas and the place is packed. And I know they're saying things are bad, but people still seem to be gambling. And I know they're building a lot in Macau. And I've been there and seen that. There's so many people there. And he goes, you can't do that. Do not do that. Talks me out of it. I go, well, let's just do a little bit of money. That's when they were trading for $3. And I go, why didn't I just go with my gut? Why, like, why did I listen to this guy? Everything he told me, I lost money, the professional. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean to sound like there's any, you know, have hubris and saying like, well, everything I pick was good, but it showed me that why can't I take an interest in this and at least make some decisions for myself and say, you know, I'm fine if I lose, it was my, you know, either my own bad judgment or I misread the situation. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with doing that. And then having the foundation of, you know, let's, let's learn about indexing and have the safe stuff over here and then be able to take some moonshots. And that got me just, you know, I, I started reading everything I could and got into the whole, you know, Ben Graham Buffett kind of value investing the trajectory probably everybody goes on where you go down that peter lynch path and buy what you see buy what you know and that was my main thing for years is a long-term buy and hold find companies i believe in and i started to want to trade more because i would be on the road be touring uh you got nothing to do for 23 hours a day you work at night i'd wake up i wake up early i'd wake up in the morning and I would watch either CNBC or I'd be just interested in kind of stuff that was going on. And I, I wanted to get more actively involved in it. And then I started doing, you know, well, I'm not going to go buy a huge, massive amount of shares of this company, just hoping it goes up. So that's what got me into options and learning how that works and how, oh, I can define some risk and I can have an idea about something. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't, okay, I lost on that, but it's not the end of the world. So that's why, you know, I, I, I'm kind of shocked more musicians don't do this with kind of that, take, taking it from that lens of you get to see a lot of stuff and you have, I think it just comes down to maybe lack of understanding, which is important. And that's what you and your brother and you, you guys do is teach people 
how to do this. Cause you don't want to just jump in and do it. Cause that's, I've done that too, where I don't, I, I didn't understand something and I go, well, what just happened? <laughs> it's like, it's like going to a crap stable for the first time. And you're like, well, where, where, where'd all the money go? I don't understand what happened. I go, you have to, that's not what it is, but you, you need to know the mechanics of it. So that's what got me really interested in doing it. And then it was like, I mean, especially this last year, I was just like, I'm going to do this as my job this year. Basically I'm trapped at home. We're not traveling. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the VIX hit like 80 and I was like, this is wild. <laughs> like, like this is the time to be trying at least, you know, to come in and do some of these moves. Well, um, and I applaud you for it. I think you're absolutely right that uh, certain vocations like yours do lend themselves to having a lot of time. Um, now, I'm sure when you're on the road, a lot of that is really regimented um, and, but when you get to a city and on your way to the city, you could, if you were so disposed as you were, um, start reading up and or making some trades um, because you're on stage and I'm sure between the prep and being on stage, maybe that's four or five hours out of the day at most. Yeah. Um, but the rest of it is like your time. Same thing with pro athletes. A yeah. lot of uh, a lot of pro athletes I wouldn't encourage uh, to do this because we've had dozens and dozens of pro athletes work with my brother Pete and a, a team of wealth managers. Some of them very successfully, a lot of them just way too much money getting pulled out of their accounts all the time to support their uh, entourage. Sure. Um, and, you know, they end up worse off, not because of investing, but because um, they, they weren't, uh, they were very distracted. Yeah. That can be a real problem. Uh, that's that lack, that lack of financial literacy that you just don't get really. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. taught in school and a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, those guys, especially the checks they're getting at 18 years old and you know, here's a pile of money. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's important to understand. Uh, and you know, you have to learn on your own. I mean, I, I, I did musicians do, uh, I know athletes definitely do with those dollar amounts for sure. Sure. And yet if, if you're somebody that has an interest, like the one that you fostered and that you grew that interest in finance and in, you know, uh, turning, you know, a few dollars into more dollars and so forth, everybody wants to do that, but not everybody, not everybody should. And not everybody um, has a dedication that you have quite frankly, Devin. Um, but if you have that dedication and it doesn't need to be full-time as I'm sure it doesn't need to be full-time for you, uh, you've got other things going on in your life, but, um, to the extent that a pro basketball player, baseball player, football player, you wouldn't have believed in the locker rooms, how many of the guys I would see sitting there back in the older days when I was there, sitting there with a wall street journal yeah, or with the business section of a newspaper. And I'm sure there are some musicians that are doing the same thing while everybody else is partying. There's probably somebody in there who's a little bit older and is looking at not necessarily breaking down a spreadsheet because as you know, that's not what I do. Yeah. What I do, I'm looking for momentum and jumping on that momentum and hoping it carries us to a hundred percent or 200% on this option trade. Yeah. But I don't need to sit down and people do that all the time. They ask us questions, Devin, like, uh, well, how can you buy this if 
Tesla's selling at 30 times sales. And, and I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. I really don't care. I'm not buying Tesla today for what it might be 10 years from now. I'm buying it today for what it might be in 10 minutes, 10 hours, or 10 days. You know, that's and even if you were, even if you were, like if you believed in Tesla five years ago, mm -hmm. bought it, and then just like closed your eyes and said, I just believe in this guy. Where would you be right now? And the people, who, the people who can do that, I mean, hindsight always shows you that. It's like, mm -hmm. you want to tell yourself like, oh, I definitely would have bought Amazon at $9 when it crashed. 100%. Well, yeah, would you have held it through all that? And yep. that's the question, I think. You know, that's the thing. To your point, I've definitely been interested in this and doing it not professionally, but for myself. And I'll have colleagues come up to me and they want, well, what's the stock tip? What's the one to buy? I go, it's not about that. Like, I can't tell you that. Cause even if I believe it, I'm not going to be there to tell you when to sell it, or I don't know how you're going to behave if it does this. Mm -hmm. And that's, you got to make that decision for yourself. And I, yeah, managing the emotion is a big part of it. And I think that's the one thing getting that under control is cause it's easy to buy something. I mean, I just, someone's texting me right now asking if they should buy Bitcoin. I, go, I don't know if you should or not. <laughs> like, like, do you want to, or do you not want to? I don't know. Yeah. And you don't have to go all in. Yeah. I mean, so many investors, uh, you can only imagine the money that was made in Vegas when, you know, back in the day when you had to go into a casino to place your sports bet. Yeah. And, you know, you basically, you're going in and you're all in. You're going in and you're, you know, I'm going in on the Raiders. I'm going in on Pittsburgh or Cleveland or whatever. I'm going in on that. And it's not the same with investing. You can kind of scale in. Or if you're trading options, instead of, we say it all the time, Devin, but instead of putting a thousand share position on in a $50 stock, that's $50,000. Yeah, by 10, by 10 options. Yeah. Yep. I could buy 10 options at five bucks a piece. That's yeah. $5,000, for instance. Sure. Um, and I have one tenth the risk. Um, the trade-off is I have a limited amount of time to be right. Yeah. Um, and yet I'm comfortable with that versus, okay, well, you know, you saw Sarepta this week on what was it, Monday or was it last Friday? Sarepta was down 50% in one day. One day. Yeah. They had a, um, a muscular dystrophy drug that didn't hit the endpoints and bang, the stock gets cut in half. Well, and that's, I mean, the biotech and biopharma space, that's what it is. It's basically yep. miss one <laughs> clinical trial Yep. It's or hit one. Yeah. And you're double your market cap immediately. Yep. Um, but, you know, like right now, if people talk to me about like one of the reasons we like Tesla so much a few years ago was we did the analysis, you know, not that huge deep dive, but we did the analysis and said, what's the difference between Tesla and Ford? They don't have legacy costs. Yeah. Their costs started when Elon Musk formed the company. They didn't have um, employees that they had to pay going back 50 years. Pensions, yeah. Yeah. And again, I say it all the time, but this is not me denigrating the great job that people at Ford and General Motors and Mercedes and all these other car manufacturers did. The companies made that deal. The companies traded off paying them more per hour in exchange. They paid them less and said, we'll fund a pension for you instead. Yeah. That was the trade-off the company made. Elon Musk hasn't had to make that yet 
because they've only been making cars for 10 years. Yeah. So at some point in the future, Musk will have that burden that he'll have to shoulder. And maybe by then the company will be something completely different. But that was our thesis going in was, you know, General Motors has a dealer network. They make most of the money. The dealer makes mo more money on that Escalade than General Motors makes. General Motors has to pay all of those, you know, past people as well as the present people. Um, and then has to basically let the dealer network mark that thing up. They get the money the General Motors yeah. get and they get the trade in. Tesla and doesn't have dealers. They sell it to you. You buy it exactly. from Tesla. Yeah. Tesla sells it to you directly. Yeah. So, uh, and when they do a, a, an upgrade, a software upgrade, it happens over the, over the internet. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. And I then, remember the first time I went in a friend's Tesla Model S. I'd never been in one. And it was just, it felt like the future. I go, yeah. this, I get it now. Like, this makes so much sense to me why everyone loves this. It was yeah. so cool. And I mean, you can't, yeah, to your point, like, there are, he, he's doing something different. And is it just a car company? I don't think it's just a car company. I mean, no. I, the, the lead time he has on battery tech and just everything else they can do, like the yeah. verticals they could pull, I go, this could be so much, maybe it's undervalued. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's what Kathy Woods says over there at ARK Investments. And boy, that lady has killed it. I remember when, I remember when she was on CNBC and I think it was, was it 4,000? She goes, Tesla's going to 4,000. People were just like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> yep. And just but, think, yeah. did it go to 4,000? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Because with the you split. Know, it, it went in August when they did the five for one split, which happened, you know, after Labor Day, I think. Apple split four for one, uh, Tesla five for one. Today it was trading 850 again. Wow. That's after a five for one split. It's unbelievable. I mean, so 4,000, she's almost to 5,000 already. Yeah. I mean, you know, craziness. <laughs> it is, it is. But I mean, that's, you know, I mean, you can't argue with, you know, bet the jockey, not the horse. Like he's, you know, yeah. Elon Musk, I'll bet on him, like yeah. what he's doing. And I was talking this today. Um, we're talking, by the way, with Devin Bronson folks on um, Tuesday, the 12th of January. And I was on the halftime report today, which is why I still have a sport coat. On Devin. Nice. Otherwise I'd be dressed like that. <laughs> um, and uh, the judge was asking me about, um, EVs, you know, these other EV players like Lee, symbol LI, like Fisker, um, like e or XPEV, um, which is mainly for like warehouses and things like that, because it isn't just going to be cars or over the road trucks. A lot of EVs are going to be replacing things that right now are running in Home Depot and in big warehouses. Sure. Um, and a lot of them will be autonomous too. Um, and the Chinese are really working on this hard. One of those companies, NIO, NIO, I think they only delivered 16,000 cars last year. And the judge was like, but doc, you know, it's up 50% in a month or whatever. And I'm like, judge, what do you want me to tell you? Could it go up tenfold from here? It could because 16,000 vehicles and they were almost exclusively in China. 1.4 billion people. Yeah. And, and they're pushing them out all over the place. How many of these vehicles could they sell? Will they sell? It's a bet on all that stuff. But again, I'm not the guy that's breaking down that, 
um, Excel spreadsheet and sitting there saying, well, you know, if, if, they, if I multiply this times, you know, 50,000 vehicles instead of 16,000, this is where they'll be. I'm not that guy, but I see all the institutions betting on this stuff. I follow them and I keep rolling up, rolling up, pulling money off the table. If you do that, you can have a lot of winners and hopefully a few losers, not yeah. a lot of losers, but I'm sure sooner or later I'll get stuck holding the bag in Neo. I'm fine with that or in Lee or in Tesla or in XPEV or in Fisker, but I've just kept rolling up, rolling up, rolling up, and then taking that money off the table, taking four bucks off the table, putting a buck back on the table, and then letting that go. And as long as that's going, and as long as we see that unusual activity, Devin, that's what feeds me. That's yeah. what I am driven by. And obviously- that, That's the best way to trade, in my opinion. Because when I first started doing this, I jumped into just doing, well, I'm just going to do basically stock- proxies by buying leaps. I'm going to buy, you know, I believe CVS is going up. I'll buy an option a year away. And I'm like, well, I'm paying a lot more for that time. And I have to manage that time and what's going on in between. And mm -hmm. some are okay. But I go, if I, if, if I treat this more as learning the, what you guys teach all the time about, uh, you know, the intrinsic and extrinsic value and how the volatility works against you and how the time decay works. I go, that's the way to trade these. And you can't, you don't have to marry a position. You don't have to be like, okay, I'm going all in on that's so much money. I'm going to buy all this stock. It's like, yep. that's an interesting idea. And that could be good. And there's a lot of talk about this right now. Let's see where it goes. And that that's the fun and excitement. And I think it, it's been very good in terms of, like you said, managing, mitigating my risk to the downside completely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, as a, you know, even though my brother had a much longer pro career than I did, Devin. So whenever I say as a pro athlete, I was a pro athlete for six weeks. <laughs> I played four games in the preseason for the Bears. So I'm not trying to build myself up to say, oh, I'm this big pro athlete. But as a pro athlete, or even, even, even if I never got to that stage as an amateur athlete, the winning, when you win, with these trades, it feels like being out on the field. Yeah, yeah. For you, does it feel like you're in front of that 85,000 person, you know, rock concert in Brazil? <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you, you want some action. You want, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I get it. Twitter can be a very kind of vitriolic place sometimes, as, as I'm sure you know. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I try to, I try to treat it as like, this should be fun. This should be like, you know, you know, information, but also, you know, things are goofy. We're talking and it's like, it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. If I have to see Peter Schiff hawking gold anymore, like every time, every day, yeah. he's telling you you're basically an idiot if you don't own just gold. I go, well, I, I don't eat just Italian food every day. Why do I have to do one thing? Can I do that and some other stuff? There's nothing wrong with having a mixture of these plans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I find it funny why people just like marry themselves to like, this is the only way to do it. I go, well, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Diversification is definitely something that you're smart to do. I mean, uh, I, I should have, you know, I first bought Bitcoin at 300 bucks. Wow. Um, but I didn't hold them. I traded them. I mean, literally it moved so fast, Devin, that I took it off and I said, I just don't understand this. And I didn't trade it again for another year. So when I got back in, it was 2000 bucks or 2200 bucks or whatever. 
And I didn't load the boat there either, but I've started buying it and understanding it. I don't think people have to go whole hog all in. And for all of our folks that, you know, join us on our weekly calls and things like that, um, I tell them when they ask invariably about, well, what about Bitcoin? What about Ethereum? What about this? What about that? I said, you know, put a little bit in. Get used to it, put $500 or whatever's appropriate for you. You don't have to buy a $34,000 Bitcoin itself. Yeah. You can put $100, $200. Get used to watching it. And then on significant corrections, like one we've just had, maybe then you start scaling in a little bit. But, you know, this fear of missing out is a really powerful driver, just like that Tina trade. You know, there sure. is no alternative. Yeah, to yeah. And there always is an alternative and it's to wait. And is there a cost to waiting? Not that much. And nobody gives you the all clear and says time to do it. It's yep. it, you miss it. I looked at it more as, am I going to be more upset? I own Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the first, I remember 2017 when it was going gangbusters, I was one of these people that's like, do not buy this. What this is, this is going to replace money. No. It's not going to, this is ridiculous. Then it crashes. I feel right. But I go, it's very interesting. What's this thing? Nobody knows who created it. Like, it's just, the whole thing is wild. So I, I read a book that I really liked called Bitcoin Bubble or Burst. I forgot who wrote it. Hmm. But it breaks down what the blockchain is. And once I learned what the blockchain is, and then that got me excited more about Ethereum. Because I go, oh, decentralized web. Hmm. The ability to have smart contracts over that are decentralized. Nobody has that. That is interesting. Yep. And when so I started a dollar cost average into it then, because I said, well, I still don't, nobody knows. And this does seem insane, but am I going to be more upset if I lose this money or if it goes to a million dollars of Bitcoin and I didn't get to participate in at least a little bit of that, let's say. Like that, that was my logic for me. It's like, treat it like anything else, weight it in a portfolio. Like I would this stock or that stock or these bonds, any of that, that was, that's the way I look at it. Cause it doesn't, the market decides what was, yep. you had a good, you had a good quote one time. You said, I forgot who you were talking to. You go, I don't trade the economy. I trade the market. <laughs> I yep. loved that. So I go, yep. yeah, the market for this exists. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there's and, use for it. And when you look at, uh, you know, I, I'm going back and forth right now with Kevin O'Leary because I would love to pull Kevin in to uh, work with us on uh, Bitcoin and digital assets in particular uh, because he's already got O shares and he's got um, his O gig and things like that. You know, O gig did phenomenally last year. I think he was up 60 some odd percent yeah. with that ETF. That was I mean, like the work not. from home kind of ETF, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. And he was right place, right time. He came out with that, I think, in 2019. And then 2020 hits, and all of a sudden, everything just explodes. And he, you know, tripled up, quadrupled up on the market with that. So well done, Kevin. But what I would tell Kevin right now, if he was talking like you and I are, Devin, and I hope to have this conversation with him, it's number one, um, the having, the thing that occurred in May, where the miners that do the work that authenticate that blockchain, that that Bitcoin is indeed exactly what it's purported to be. It's not stolen. Um, it still has X amount of value in it because every, 
every Bitcoin has a unique identifier and they're all on all 10,000 nodes that are connected in right now and fighting for, you know, to win that speed battle to verify uh, the blockchain yeah. that it hasn't been spent and so forth. Um, I, I said, the reward is only half now of what it was last year. That means half as many new Bitcoins are coming out for the next 200,000 coins to be mined. And then it'll get cut in half again because that's how Satoshi designed it. And it's capped whoever, at what, 21 million it's capped at? Yeah, whoever yeah. Satoshi is, whether it's a group, whether it's a person, doesn't matter. Yeah. But every 200,000 coins, the reward gets cut in half. So that means there's half as many. And if you have the same amount of demand and half as many of something, I guarantee it goes up. Next question is, well, how about access? Um, is Devin Bronson going to go on to Coinbase? Probably he did or, or something similar, but now he doesn't have to. Now he can get in through PayPal or Square, which are two things that you might already be using Venmo sure. or the Cash App. Now all of a sudden you have this. So it's democratized. It's pushed it out in a bigger way to a broader spectrum of people. And yet there's still only half as many new coins. So you're dependent, if you're somebody watching this, on somebody who owned them from a long time ago. And there are people, of course, who paid 10,000 Bitcoins for a pizza. Yeah. Um, and there are some of those who have lost those um, Bitcoins because the hard drive crashed or they broke their phone or whatever. They happened threw away the USB stick. Yeah. <laughs> happened to me. Oh, geez. I, have, I still have one that's locked up on a, I think I have one and a half Bitcoin locked up on a phone that I dropped when I was working. <laughs> I can't get it off. You sent it to somebody on Gazelle and they have it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I still have the phone and I'm still trying to get it off. Oh man. Why would I give it away if that thing might be a million dollars someday? I, so a question for you also might be like, do you see, like when I think about, you know, you keep reading about pensions, need to figure out how to hit this 7% benchmark and you can't do it with fixed income. Right. And it's like, what's why wouldn't they maybe take a very small portion and go for these types of moonshot things like mm -hmm. something like this to make up for that loss of yield right and now it seems like with this becoming more ubiquitous and it not being as scary to people and you're seeing professional money managers and professional uh investors come in and give this kind of the green light it's see, digital scarcity was the point was the thing that got me to go, Oh, I understand that a little more versus telling me dollars are just going away that I didn't believe, but Oh, a digital store of value that I can understand a little more. That makes some more sense to me. Yep. The fact that there's a limit to it. Um, and only by mutually assured destruction, it, you know, we won't get to 21 million coins mined until 2140, I think is the projection right now, because again, there's a lot, the calculation slows down with every Bitcoin yeah. in mind. So when we finally get to 2140 and all 21 million coins have been mined um, and that proof of work that we just described for you guys um, is no longer necessary um, in the same way, um, I, I think that there is the ability to take it and say, okay, let's make it 42 million instead of 21 million. But why would 20, the owners of 21 million Bitcoins, the majority of those owners would have to agree, yeah, let's, let's, um, let's uh, degrade the value of my asset by- Yeah, half. the Winklevoss twins aren't gonna to agree to that. 
Right. <laughs> and I don't think very many people ever would. Sure. But unfortunately, as we all know, um, without our permission or agreement, the Fed does it all the time. Yeah. How many trillion dollars did we print last year? Eventually, you get to a point where Peter Schiff is right, maybe not about gold, but about the more that the Fed just prints money. Yeah. Um, especially now that they don't even need to print it. They just move it around, you know, digitally. Um, they don't need ink and paper because most of it isn't ink and paper. Most of the money that we're talking about is zeros and ones in on the internet and behind a hopefully a very secure wall. Yeah, you're, you're just, yeah, it's on a ledger somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that uh, we are unlikely to see um, something be better than Bitcoin, but Ethereum, I agree with you, is the next best. And then you've got Uni um, and a bunch of other things. I mean, I like Voyager token, you know, VGX, and I like it because I own Voyager, not the whole company, hmm. but Pete and I own a significant stake in Voyager because we really believe in the digital broker space too. Yeah. Um, but it won't all be through Coinbase or through Binance or Bitfinex or whatever it is. It'll be, you know, real brokers that are publicly traded and trustworthy. Um, so I think that's another reason to, you know, believe. Yeah, and it's, it's, if you believe too, our, our country is going to go to some digital currency at some point, probably. Yeah. And I don't, maybe they denominate it based on the value of Bitcoin. Who knows? I don't like, it just seems like it should be something to seriously look at as being yep. a part of your portfolio at this point. Yep. I agree. Devin, I can't thank you enough, man, for joining us. Yeah, and, this was fun. Uh, just shooting the breeze with us and giving us a little insight into being Devin Bronson up there in front of 85,000 people. Oh, and back, back when I can it. get to it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait till you can get back to it. Yeah. Because uh, there's a buddy of mine in New York, by the way, that uh, introduced me to Slash and a bunch of the folks at Guns N' Roses. Nice. Um, and John Bon Jovi and some of these guys. And um, he's just a really good guy. Joe Fammy is his name. He's on Twitter. Okay. Very smart guy, good trader. Um, but he's brought me backstage and, you know, we've gone to some great concerts and things and I miss it. I miss it so much live music because it's not the same as much as I love music. It's not the same when I don't get to see you guys on a stage doing it live. Yeah. It's uh it was the first to go down and it'll probably be the last to come back, but the demand is definitely there. Like when, you, when you see the demand, I mean, I think live nation had 80% of their ticket holders were saying, I'm holding on to it. I want to go. And when, when it can happen, I'm going. So that's a good sign. Yeah, that is a good sign. And there's good signs with the vaccine and so forth. So let's keep the vaccine rollout going. And uh, man, Devin, I can't say enough about how I appreciate you, what you did what you do and your support for what we're doing as well. Absolutely. So I encourage you and reach out anytime because anytime you need something, I'll be happy to help out. I appreciate it, John. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Devin. Devin Bronson, folks. Take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.